Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. All right, and welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour. Boy, we are excited. We got a great show for you today. There is no telling what we're going to talk about because we are super honored to have Kelly Fristo with us today. He is the current president of all oh, man, am I, I, I'm going to get in trouble. I don't want somebody $20 for saying it wrong here. <laughs> for the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals, NABIP. Uh, I, was, uh, I was really lucky to get to hang out with Kelly at the Texas NABIP. And it was funny that they had a, a bounty, if you were to use the wrong phrasing on the organization. Kelly, welcome aboard Health and Wealth Power, buddy. Thank you. And you, yes, you nailed it. You got it right. <laughs> I was, I was concerned because I was afraid there, you know, I would get a letter, certified letter in the mail telling me, uh, uh, here's where to make my payment to. <laughs> so it's funny you said that, you know, we, we, we put a lot of money behind the, the new branding of this new name. Because you think about it, all these years that we have been known as the National Association of Health Underwriters and a we stopped underwriting a long time ago, if, if there ever yeah. was such a thing, right? The field underwriting. Field underwriting, yeah. Back in the day when we would have uh, all the insurance companies were asking health questions, and we would kind of evaluate and field underwrite whether or not that uh, potential insured would actually get a policy issued before it went to the real underwriters that live in the basements at these insurance companies that never really see sunlight. We're not those people. But when we were talking to legislators and we were talking to people in the industry and telling them who we were as the National Association of Health Underwriters, it was a barrier, a long dialogue of explaining that we are not those basement people. We are the people out there actually helping consumers make better choices when it comes to uh, the financing options they have available to them for health care. So now, we, put, again, put a lot of branding into this. We've changed our name as of January 1st, a new year, and we've got a lot of new opportunities. And so I, I truly believe that our best days are still ahead of us in this industry as we continue to try to move that needle forward on, you know, solving healthcare issues and bring the fixes to the consumer that they so desperately need. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you talked about the fact that we used to be underwriters. I can certainly remember those days. And we had a field underwriting kit on pretty much every product we had out there. There was a field underwriting kit, not just with the questions that were, say, on our health apps, but other additional things that even said, look for this and look for this. It really wanted you to be that field underwriter. We had a whole section that we completed beyond what 
the questions that we asked the the actual potential client. So yeah, those days from so many people, if you've gotten this industry in the last 10 years, you never even knew that existed because those days are over. There is no underwriting, especially on the health side now. That is uh that's some that's I still contend to this day that the ACA turned health insurance into not insurance. There is no uh, there's no risk sharing of risk anymore. The the risk is 100% on the insurance company because if you have to take everybody, that's not insurance. That truly is not. It doesn't fit the definition of insurance. So, yeah, you're right. So underwriting, no underwriting, well, there, there has to be some sort of way in which they have to price that risk, right? But there's not like any good credit for living a healthy lifestyle. There's not any good credit for having a good BMI. They're just having to price to the maximum that they're allowed to price. It's the worst case scenario. It's kind of like, and I, I use this analogy with my clients sometimes, that when you think about the other aspects of insurance that we buy, like car insurance, for example. So if I'm you know, in my driveway with my 1985 pickup truck that I also have a clean driving record, no tickets, no wrecks, but this pickup truck is a 1985 model. And I'm not going to tell you whether it's a Chevy or Ford, because then we're going to... A whole other conversation, right? <laughs> right? But it's a pickup. It, it might be a Dodge. It might be a Chevy. It might be a Ford. But it's a pickup. And it's an old pickup. And it's not worth much. But I love my pickup, right? My neighbor, on the other hand, across the street, has a 16-year-old son. And money is no object, object to them. And... They went out and bought that 16-year-old new driver, a brand new Corvette. And really what has happened is my car insurance rates that I pay are the same as that 16-year-old with that Corvette. That's what the ACA did to health insurance for all of us. It's a no, shame. I, I agree. It's everyone's sick. Everyone has to be sick. Now, in, in the insurance company's defense, if I have someone on a insurance plan and the end of the year, and it's open enrollment, and let's just say that they're on XYZ insurance company, but they want to switch to ABC insurance company, and they're in the middle of cancer treatment, and they, they're they making that change because their doctor tells them, I'm going to stop taking XYZ, you need to switch to ABC or else you can't see me anymore. There's nothing that ABC Insurance Company can do about that. They must accept this person right in the middle of cancer treatment, and they're going to start their benefits on day one. That's right. That's not insurance, Kelly. That is not. That is, I got to provide you coverage. I have no choice about it. And so, therefore, like you mentioned, everyone's got to be rated the same. Everyone's got cancer. Everyone's got heart disease. Everyone's got to have problems. They've got to rate it that way. And that is very unfortunate, but that's also why those rates just zoom up when you start getting any little bit of age on you as far as the way the ACA looks. You hit about 35, 40 years old, man, those rates take a huge jump up too. Which kind of leads me to another element that I think is I have found really weird in that the ACA plans do ask whether or not you're a tobacco user. Yeah. <laughs> it rate. Accordingly, 
Does it even matter? I mean, again, you're going to rate it to the maximum allowed. Why don't you just go ahead and forget about the tobacco usage question and just put the rates out there to the max? You know, it's crazy. Yeah, that is the only question. You're right. I guess I guess they still care about that. I, I don't know. That, that's that is a, a funny deal. Uh, but of course, they don't ask, do you vape or do you do? There's a whole lot of other things that they could put on there that they just still ask the tobacco question. But that that is kind of funny. And if you look at the rates, it does make a difference. That is the one thing that can have them. If you thought they were bad before, be a tobacco user and see what that does for you. <laughs> exactly. I think uh, when it first came out. I think they were allowing you to uh, use tobacco up to three times per week for ceremonial or religious purposes. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I never understood the reasoning behind that either. It's just, it blows my mind how we've taken yeah. something that is so, such a, a health risk and we've minimized it. At the same time, the ACA is about accepting all health risks so it's just, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. And I think what we want to talk about is a, a little bit is how things have changed and what NABIP and those of us that are also very different minded, uh, because I know that you've got members in NABIP that are very traditional brokers, may never change over to some of the new uh, plan designs and, and things that we have going on. Uh, in our industry, I talk about every single one of these <laughs> these shows, uh, and I know you're very forward thinking in that too. We just had an awesome opportunity to spend uh, some time together at the Free Market Medical Association annual conference with a bunch of other rebels, and it was a, a great, a great atmosphere because we got to have a bunch of like-minded individuals. But talk a little bit about what you've even seen as the changes sure. in NABIF over the years. Uh, of the forward thinking that you've seen in that organization too. Yeah, so this is, this is going to be a long response, but basically the organization, uh, what was previously known as Health Underwriters, now NABIP, is the largest industry organization of its kind. And we are a very div diverse group of people made up of a very diverse group of types of agents. So we have a whole section of our membership that is our agents that are totally dedicated to the Medicare market. That's all they do. And when you think about the companies that you connect with and what you're able to do in that Medicare space, it's going to be a BUCA. It's going to be a BUCA company that you're going to deal with. You're not going to deal with any sort of self-funded element where an individual can go out there and get their Medicare Part A and B and then go purchase a self-insured or a captive Medicare supplement plan. That doesn't exist right now. They're going to go buy a Medicare supplement plan from the insurance company. And so when we think about this, the products and services that we have to, and the professional development, the resources that we have to be for that sort of member, it has to somehow incorporate those elements of the insurance companies that they're going to do business with. And so when we hold a meeting that's dedicated to professional development or CE around Medicare, it's highly likely that we're going to have an insurance company 
whether it be a Cigna, a Blue Cross Blue Shield, an Aetna, United Healthcare, Blue Cross, one of those companies, Mutual Omaha, they're going to want to come in and sponsor that. And rightly so yep. for that crowd. That's that's how we have to orchestrate some of that. Uh, we can't be so hard-nosed about those companies that we, you know, cut our nose off to spot our, our face, right? We've got to be able to deliver that to that section of the membership. We also have members, as you know, that are totally dedicated to the individual under age 65 uh, ACA space, the individual health insurance plans. And again, these are going to be done with companies across the marketplace that are going to be Blue Crosses, United Healthcare's, Aetna's, Friday, Oscar Health, Molina, um, and Better. I mean, they're just they're the insurance companies. And therefore, we have to focus and be cognizant of those relationships that exist in that sector of our membership. But then we also have the small group space, the large group agent that's doing large group plans, mid-market plans, and, and the uh, high-performing plans that don't use any sort of network at all, the self-funded plans. Now, that's where there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of disruption, a lot of of um, just different activity that's occurring because that's where the needle is moving to where we can bring solutions that don't involve the insurance company, so to speak, where we are having to deal with a network pricing model where the price that the doctor or hospital gets paid is already a predetermined amount that is a very fictitious number. It's very high. In fact, in that world, as you know, we're seeing where insurance companies and systems like hospital systems are working together to right. keep those retail costs high. And the only way that you can escape that is to leave that system and do a self-funded plan, whether it be a plan that you're going to use a reference-based pricing model, which I have my own thoughts around reference-based pricing and RBP. I think that that's maybe a good place to start, but maybe not the best place to stay because eventually I think we're going to find that the best place to be is where an employer has direct agreements with providers in their community that helps to relocalize and rehumanize that healthcare experience and create fair pricing to keep that network element, that pre-negotiated pricing out of the equation. We've got to, we've got to take a buyer of healthcare the seller of healthcare and put them together and cut out all the middle persons that exist in that equation that extract value in that model. Uh, so, you know, we have elements there too to take care of, to cater to and provide resources to that sort of agent. Again, the very, very diverse population that we're trying to deal with and get all of these people to be members of this organization because this is the only organization that marches on the hill in, in Washington, D.C. for change for the consumer. There's a lot of other organizations like us, but they don't go to Washington, D.C., have the name brand recognition that we do and get the uh, results that we get when we go. Yeah, I think that was uh, very apparent whenever uh, we were having the Texas meeting here a few weeks ago. And there was updates from both what's going on in Texas and then what's going up nationally, because there was representation in both 
areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one of the primary people that was uh, planning on speaking couldn't be there because of certain votes that were going on that very day that yeah. the meeting was there. Uh, that just shows the dedication. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I, uh, can y'all wait on the vote? I need to go speak at the, the, the Texas meeting. No, I can't speak at the Texas meeting because the vote's going on. I've got to be here representing this organization and making sure that they remember what we stand for. You know, one of the things you and I talked about a little bit before we started the show was the difficulty over the years you have seen, and I've I've had these conversations with folks on my show before, that politicians, as a general rule, just don't get it. They don't get it. And I've had this with other uh, conversations with non-politicians, and they've experienced the same exact situation. They just don't get it. And Part of the reason, I think, is they just won't talk to us, the boots on the ground folks, the the folks that see it day in, day out. You know, they may hear a horrible story from a constituent that had a bad situation with an insurance company. But when they try to fix the problem, they didn't understand why it was an issue to begin with. And in my opinion, that's where they're missing the boat. Yeah, and you know, we probably did a lot of that to ourselves over the years, putting us in a place where, and let's face it, that insurance salesman, if you've seen Groundhog Day, <laughs> if you've seen that show, and, uh, you've seen where the, the insurance agent is trying to sell insurance, it, it doesn't put us in a good light. And, and really, when you think about it too, the way in which we're compensated there's a little bit of perversity that exists in some of that compensate those compensation models. Now, a lot of that I think is being changed as well. And we can talk about that uh, here in a few minutes if you want to, but whenever you look at how um, a person that comes to me and wants to buy an insurance plan where previously I was compensated based on how much money they paid for that insurance policy. And therefore, I may have a tendency to want to sell them something that costs a lot more money than what it needed to, just so that I could get paid more. That truly exists today still. It existed a lot more several years ago. But we've got to figure out something different. And, and we are, we're figuring out what a different compensation model looks like. Because now a lot of these insurance companies that pay out compensation to the, to the, to the broker, it's basically, it doesn't matter what the premium is, it's the same compensation. So it's a per month compensation per person, not based upon the premium. And so right. some of that per, perverseness has been taken out of the equation, but, We've already got this, um, we've already been identified by legislators that, oh, we're those low-life insurance agents just out to make another sale. I think that that's what a lot of them think. They don't look at, as, look at us as being professionals licensed to be able to help them make smarter decisions. And let's face it, too, a lot of these legislators, they are they are business owners. They are having to purchase insurance for their employees that work for them in those businesses. And they've all got their favorites, right? But they don't know what they don't know. 
Right. And all the years that I've been going to Austin, Texas, to visit with legislators, all the years that I've been going to Washington, D.C., you know, we tell them that we are the people that are connected to their constituents, that we have information that's very valuable to share, very personal stories where, you know, one of my clients didn't get the treatment that they needed because of some element that is tied in legislatively with how insurance companies operate. And we take these personal stories of them, and they're just now starting to see that truly we do have the best interest of our clients at heart. Because when you're living in a small town like Wichita Falls, Texas, my reputation is all that I've got. And if I do somebody wrong, I guarantee you they know where my office is, and they're here pounding on my desk saying, you fix this. You messed it up. Now you fix it. And if I don't, well, you, back in the old days, what was the saying? You get run run out of town on a rail. I mean, they would, right. just, they would get rid of you in a heartbeat. But, I, you know, I still haven't had any legislator call me up and say, you know, I'm thinking about introducing a bill that will help solve such and such problem. What do you think about this? And how would you craft the language of that bill? That's never been a phone call that, that I've been called on or received to help out. But in other words, some of these guys that put these bills forth, we had a senator one year that back whenever the uh, methamphetamine was just getting off the charts. This is about 10 years ago. And, you know, Sudafed, right? Remember Sudafed when you could just go to the drugstore and buy a case of Sudafed for your allergies. And that's what the drug dealers were using to cook this methamphetamine. And so they, how do we slow down the, the purchase of this methamphetamine? And the senator here in Wichita Falls, what he wanted to do was make it where the consumer had to have an actual prescription from the doctor for Sudafed. Good idea, right? Yeah, maybe. But when you think about it, if it's now a prescription medication, now the insurance company with a drug plan has to pay for that prescription. And now the cost goes back into an insurance component, which is going to come back on us in the form of higher premiums. So we had to convince him to not file this bill because it was going to make insurance more expensive. And that's the last thing we need in Texas. So I think they fixed it by just having to show your ID and the pharmacist had to record that you came in and bought some Sudafed and you're limited to a number of, of uh, the amount of Sudafed that you can purchase. And that has helped curb some of that problem that we had here. Yeah, but the thing that sticks out about what you said is you also mentioned you've been going to Austin, Texas for a number of years. And I, I think you told me you've been going and sitting down and talking to legislators in Austin for over 20 years. But not one time have any of them ever called you when it actually got down to the time to review that. So you've taken time out of your day, our days, going and sit down with them to offer your expert and professional advice on and, and telling them, giving them ideas on what you're seeing, what you personally are seeing and your clients are talking about as issues. And while they were open to hear what you had to say, there was no follow-up on either by them or staff members 
to say, hey, we heard what you said. We appreciate your offer to help. And no matter where you were in your journey, and you've been a part of NABIP and a, a leader in not always the president, but a, in the leadership role of a national organization that works in an industry that has all has had problems for years and never once has anyone reached out to you, either on the state or federal level, and said, we appreciate your offer to help and we're going to take you up on it. So, yeah, that's the case, unfortunately. But and I think there's some dynamics that play into that, right? Um, for one, sure. Texas, you're still insurance agents, right? We're still yeah. insurance. You're still a dirty old insurance agent. <laughs> Those low life insurance agents that dog on insurance salesmen. But I think that's changing. You know, we on the ladder of occupations, you know, down there in that used car dealer bottom rung, we're not there anymore. We have we have climbed that ladder where we're up there almost at the top now because of the the way in which we now operate professionally. We've had to really focus on that part of our industry and and being consummate professionals. And we've done that through the incorporation of continuing education classes that we have to adhere to. Used to there was no such thing as having right. to go have CE. It was all volunteer. But we have that. Now, Texas is weird because we only meet once every two years in our legislature, unless there's a special session that's called, right? And when things happen in Texas within a about a five-month period, it happens very fast. And so these legislators don't have a lot of time to massage a lot of data. Now, they can do that when they're not in session and get things teed up. We're just in a very busy world, and, and a lot of these things out of sight, out of mind, it doesn't get back in mind until we get back in session and we think about we got to solve some of these healthcare problems. But Texas is a great state, and when we do solve some problems here legislatively with regard to healthcare, we do a really good job. We, what I, I kind of use the term, we Texify it for the Texas consumer. We've done some really good things. Now, Washington, D.C., has a little bit slower pace and it's 24 seven up there in Washington, DC. And so whenever we have issues that we bring to light, we do have the uh, administration, not necessarily the legislator, but the administration, CMS, HHS, we've got very deep relationships within those departments where they, uh, they'll reach out to us actually and say, hey, here's some things, we're creating some rules around a certain aspect of healthcare legislation and we want to run we want to run this by you. What do you think? So we have opportunities all the time to create comments and white papers on certain aspects. You know, one of the things that we're dealing with right now in the Medicare space is that this last year, CMS came out because of the bad actors. You know, we know that when we get to October, those television commercials are going to start back up with Joe Namath and J.J. Walker and William Shatner, and these celebrities saying, you need to get all the benefits you deserve. Call the Medicare hotline right now. Yep. And the Medicare beneficiary doesn't really even have to call the Medicare hotline. They're getting phone calls every day. That they're, they're not supposed them. to get. That they're, they're not, not supposed to get. They're illegal to call them, and they get them every damn day, multiple times a day. Yeah. And so these seniors are getting these calls, and it's just very frustrating for them. And so finally, after all these complaints, well, Medicare finally said, okay, we're going to start reviewing these commercials. We're going to start monitoring these phone calls, doing, you know, secret caller 
things and making sure that the agents aren't, you know, giving out bad information. Well, the bad actors were those call centers. I'm not a call center. Right. My friends across the nation that do Medicare that are members of this organization, they're not in a call center. They have very personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with their clients. They are not the problem. It's the call centers. And here's how it works, Harlan. These call centers that get hired are offshore that don't have to you know, comply with our laws in this country, and they don't. And so what they do is they make an inbound call to the senior and ask the questions and get them interested in talking about Medicare and whether or not they're getting all the benefits they deserve. And that Medicare beneficiary goes ahead and caves in and goes, okay, I'm, you know, let's talk about this. And now the outbound call that was generated from overseas, that person is saying, okay, we're going to transfer you to a live agent. And as they transfer them to a live agent within this country, that live agent is answering the call. Thank you for calling us at Senior Select Quote System. How may we help you? So that's an inbound call. Now. It's an inbound call now, right? No, it didn't start out that way. And that's the stuff that's really hard to catch for CMS to go in there and catch all that. So they just made a blanket rule that said, okay, if you're going to do enrollments online with Medicare beneficiaries or over the phone, everyone has to record those phone calls. And man, the agent population, broker population like myself that does Medicare, we're like, are you kidding me? We have to comply with keeping these uh, in a HIPAA compliant recording space, right. whatever that looks like. If I don't <laughs> currently record my calls, what do I got to do to start recording my calls? And what is that going to cost me? Right. Well, that could be a lot of money. I'm out of my pocket now. And, and so it's, for me, I may, people like that are just dabbling in the Medicare space or not dabbling. Maybe they're in the space, but not to the greatest extent. Right. They now have to go, you know, it's not worth it for me to be in the Medicare space anymore. There's just too much. It's costing me too much. Now, I will tell you, I'm an advocate for recording phone calls. How many times have you dealt with a client? You didn't re record the phone call, but wish you had. Oh, yeah. Six months later, they're calling you up and said, well, you told me that this plan does that. And I'm like, no, no, we didn't. No, we didn't talk about that. I didn't tell you that. And right. if I had a phone call to go back and, and play, <laughs> here's what we talked about. It would make it very clear. So there's a good thing, I think, about recording phone calls, but being told that you have to whenever you're, you've got these relationships already built with your clients, there's a, that trust element that exists there, and we're the ones that's not the problem, that's a problem. And so we're still trying to fight that battle in, in Washington, D.C., by having some legislation filed that would take us, those of us that are brokers and not a call center, out of that equation. Yeah, and once again, I think this is a great segue into what I want to talk about next. And this is that when we rely on government to fix the problem, and many times they just make the problem worse or they bring up another problem. In this case, it wasn't us as the brokers that were the problem. It was the call centers but they did a blanket 
law, in this case, a blanket regulation that took everyone into this, but actually made it more difficult for the good guys, us, to help our clients. It made it more difficult for us to do it. And that certainly was not their intention, right? I'll be, let's be honest. It wasn't their intention to make the benefit, to have, have the beneficiary make it more difficult for them to be helped. Instead, they did. And now they're adding on to that with this 48-hour rule, right? The whole whole other thing. We won't keep going down this rabbit hole on, on this particular thing, but it's not that we're against it. It's the way that they're asking it, us to do it. And then, of course, we've got, like everything with CMS, keep it for 10 years. <laughs> keep it where for 10 years? What do you want me to do with this thing? Uh, and, and they don't care. I don't care how you keep it, but it's got to be secure and it's got to be for 10 years. And uh, it, it's always kind of funny the way they do all these things, right? Um, <laughs> and ultimately, the, uh, the consumer is the one that's hurt the most. Right. Is now they don't have access to a, a consummate professional in their community that truly can help them make a smarter financial decision. Just a real quick tangent. I had a lady in my office this morning that I wish I'd have been able to see her back in 2016 because she's been paying a Medicare Part B premium since 2016 that she didn't need to be paying because she was on an employer-based plan. plan, Yeah. All that money that she spent paying Part B premiums since that time, she didn't need to. But again, Medicare is very complicated. I've yet to meet a Medicare beneficiary that fully understands how to transition into Medicare properly. And, and for those of us that are brokers that help our clients, they rely on us for that. And if it gets too difficult, if the government makes it too difficult for us to operate in that space. We're going to just throw our hands up and go, yeah, we're done. We're not going to do that anymore. And or you know something uh, that, that really do kind of what you just said. They work with more or less people that are aging in and referrals. Don't do yeah. anything else. Just eight, my own agents, my own referrals. That's all I do. So maybe they do 15, 20 a year. Maybe, maybe a little bit more, depending on how, how many folks they have that they signed up at a certain time that are all out turning 65. But there are a number of them that said, you know what? It's just not worth it. Kind of what you said earlier. I already have to take all of this additional training, hours and hours that I have to do the the federal and then for every carrier that I'm going to use, I've got to do additional training. And now you're telling me I've got to jump through all these other hoops. I'm just out. Yep. I'm just out. And, you know, are you asking me, are you still doing business? Because I'm fixing to refer some people to you. Well, hold on. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to stay in it or not. You know, like I'm kind of in your same situation. I like to help people the best I can. But where's the line? Where do you draw the line on helping your clients and and helping your business? When does it become such a burden on you because of all the regulations that you decide, maybe I just need to send you over to someone that that's all they do? So it's not a huge burden to them because they already do it. They're going to do it anyway. And it shouldn't be that way. We, you know, when you're in a community like we are, just like you, you're there in Wichita Falls. Uh, we're in the San Antonio area. I do have clients all over the place, even in other states. But in our community, you get that reputation, like you said. And so people refer friends, family to me all the time. Well, Where is such a burden? Your legislator. Your legislator comment, you know, I, I think I had a wise mentor in business one time tell me that persistence wears out resistance. And I keep hoping that one of these days, if we keep being the professionals that we are, 
that we're called upon to be, that eventually there's going to be some legislators that truly will want our opinion, that will want our help in, in the way in which they craft legislation that will bring solutions to the consumers that they need, that will help reduce costs, that will help cut through some of the confusion, that will create more transparency in this healthcare transaction that exists. Yeah, and, you know, I think we can keep open for that. And I, I don't think that at this point, right now anyway, the way Medicare is set up, kind of what you mentioned earlier, the way Medicare is set up, the way ACA is set up, that just is what it is. And and we're going to, as agents, we've got to comply with the way it's set up. If we want to work with them, if you want to sell ACA plans or even state uh, plans in other in other states, there's that you got there are different state exchanges. Then you've got to go through their trainings. You got to follow their rules. You know, only work with the companies that are offering in that state, in that area, in that county, all the way down to the county. Uh, that's just what we have. But there is a sector that imagination, <laughs> innovation, and I'm going to use the word I use all the time, guys. Uh, alternative funded solutions and really cutting edge different plans and different plan creation and brokers that can get out on the wild side can make a huge difference. And that is in the employer market and, and the in the corporate world. And, and let's understand why that is super important because there's still more people in this country that receive or have access, excuse me, to the healthcare benefits via their employer than in any other way. So that's, where we can make a big difference right now. And, and I know you touched on that earlier, Kelly, and I think that's where we can make some huge inroads right now. And that's where we focus. And I know uh, you do a lot of that too. Well, I try. Um, you know, whenever you think about where I live geographically, I, I don't have as many large employers that uh, you would have in a, in, a, in a metropolitan area like a Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin, even though we do have a, a good number here, the majority of the business that I'm that I have in my agency is that small employer because we're you know, just where we live, we just have a lot of small mom and pop type operations. And I truly believe, you know, we talk about the PPO, the HMO, these small employer, fully insured plans, that sector of the population that is so desperate for for help when it comes to affordability. The, uh, you know, we're in some weird dynamics right now because it started with COVID, as you know, we had the American Rescue Plan Act. We had the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that kept the, that well, that implemented higher premium tax credit subsidies. What I mean by that is the financial assistance that an individual would qualify for to purchase an individual health insurance plan, that those are now increased substantially. People with high wages can now still get or can get now those financial assistance elements where they wouldn't have been before the American Rescue Plan Act. And so when I'm dealing with a group of, say, a small employer that has seven employees, and where I live, the typical wage in this community is around $45,000 a year. Uh, well, those people all day long are going to qualify for financial assistance 
if they were to purchase their coverage in the individual market. And that employer goes, really? You mean I'm offering a health insurance plan? I'm paying large sums of money so that my employees can have these health insurance benefits. And you're telling me they can go to the marketplace and buy coverage that won't cost them hardly anything at all? And in some cases, nothing? I go, yes, sir, Mr. and Mrs. Employer. Yes, ma'am. Uh, if you canceled your health insurance plan today, they can all go to the marketplace and get financial assistance. Well, let's do it. Because the compliance also around an employer-based plan is enormous. Right. And if you don't have a dedicated human resource person in place to manage all the compliance around a health insurance plan offering, it could come back on you in a big way with the risk of violations. It costs you lots and lots of money, more than the health insurance plan itself does, right? So we're seeing a lot of volatility in that small employer space. And the PPO plans, if you were to look back 10 years ago where those PPO plans were priced and where they are today, and if you extrapolate this out with a 12% on average rate increase going forward, I truly believe that PPO plans will, are very quickly becoming a thing of the past. That in the future, the only people that will be able to afford to have a PPO plan will be the super elite wealthy among us. Well, if you so look at what's happened in Texas, we don't have PPOs on the marketplace and haven't had them in two or three years. They're already a dinosaur here. Yep. Uh, what we have is a couple of, you know, a few regional carriers, not your big guys, not your Uniteds, not your Aetnas, not your Blue Crosses, but some of your, uh, uh, I believe it's just Oscar and Ambetter now that offer EPOs, which is just an HMO without the, the need to get a referral. That's all it is. It's the same small, narrow type network. But whenever you talk to employers, what I have seen in, in, the San Antonio area, even some of those smaller ones that have seven people, whenever they realize, or maybe they, they themselves have been on one of those plans, and the reason they're going to continue to offer something is because they realize how terrible those plans can be. That they, they if their employees have an ACA plan, they probably don't even have access to health care because no doctors take it. Right. Uh, we ran into that last year. All of a sudden, we were kind of excited last year when United Healthcare came back into San Antonio, came back into Texas. And we're like, well, okay, good. At least we're going to have a plan. Uh, you know, we're not excited about HMOs, but at least we're going to have a plan some doctors around here might take. No, we couldn't, even in San Antonio, we couldn't find anyone to take a United Healthcare plan. The, the physician's offices that were owned by United Healthcare didn't take the United Healthcare ACA plan. What? <laughs> I know. It's messed up. Yeah. And, and again, really what we're seeing are that people are using these plans because one, they don't cost very much if they're qualifying for the financial assistance. And they're using it as a backstop, backstop to a catastrophic event. That's really all it is anymore. Because they have, in not all cases, but in most cases, these plans uh, have high deductibles high out-of-pocket maximums up to $9,100. And if that's really what you're looking at and that's what you had, I mean, that initially is a barrier to care. And so I'm telling people, we've got to get out of this mode of buying insurance 
to cover, you know, let's quit buying insurance to cover three or four office visits per year. Subscribe to the Dave Ramsey Theory of Economics. Get yourself out of debt. Get a savings account going so that you, Mr. and Mrs. Consumer, can afford to cover three or four office visits a year with some antibiotic medication. Don't transfer that risk to insurance. It doesn't make any sense to do that. Just like it doesn't make sense to transfer the worn out uh, windshield wipers on your car to a car insurance policy. We've got to get out of that mentality of doing that. Right. That's what's brought us to this point. Because we had the, you were around when we had, we didn't have copays back in the uh, mid early nineties. That was just when they were beginning to start having traction. And people like me and my friends, we were getting these copay options and going out here to the consumer go, oh man, these copay options are great. You get to use benefits before you have to meet a deductible. And so back then, though, I remember taking my two-year-old child to a doctor's appointment. And back in, you know, 30 years ago, the doctor didn't cost $200 for an office visit. Right. It may have been 60 And so if you have a copay that's 20 and the insurance company's paying the other 40 that's economically a pretty good deal. Right. But that's now right. doctor's office visits are $200, $250, and we still have a... $30 copay. So who's paying the majority of that cost when the claim gets filed? The insurance company. So now we have all this utilization and utilization leads to higher premiums. And it's, and we're still in this fee for service model and it's broken. And again, I think if we, if we were to go into the future and look back, we were, we're going to see where PPO plans are going to be a thing of the past eventually. And so what's next? How do we scale, like where you were going with this conversation, how do we scale what we can do in that large employer space, what the Walmarts of the world do, what the, the, um, the big, huge oil companies, the Exxons, the Mobiles, what, they can do self-funded plans. How do we scale that down into that small employer space? And that's what we're starting to figure out. We can scale some of these solutions down for some of these small employers that are willing to be courageous and just make the switch. But then we have network issues we have to deal with, doctor issues, and man, that meeting we were at last week or two weeks ago there in Kansas City with the Free Market Medical Association, totally focused on the direct primary care aspect. Direct primary care is changing the world for people. Absolutely. Huge, I'm loving it. And I think we need more of that. And I, in fact, I tell people, even if they have an ACA plan or a small employer fully insured plan, I'm like, go get you a direct primary care doctor. That's the best thing that you can do right now. Yep, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. It's going to cost you, you know, between $70 and $80 a month probably. It is the best thing that you can do. It's the best access to care. And it's going to get the best results in that primary care space. No, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting you talked about how the co-pays change dramatically, right? We used to talk about an office visit was 60, 80 bucks. And then you had a copay and the insurance didn't have to pay very much. Now they're $250, $300. Well, why is that? Because of insurance. Uh, if you guys out there really understood anything, it's the administration of all of these things. A doctor's office is driven crazy by administration. The majority of their staff, 
is not nurses, is not medical practitioners, it is administration. They have to have someone to do their group insurance, someone to do their ACA business, someone to do their Medicare business. None of the codes are the same. They're all going different places. And you wonder why many times they can't tell you how much it is if they do cash because they are so out of practice with it. They don't even know what anything costs anymore. It's absolutely ludicrous. But what direct primary care is bringing back is the old way of doing things. Cash is king. Get rid of all that administration. Most of your direct primary care doctors do not take insurance at all. So they have now put everyone together in a group. Let's say they have 600 people that have members. You're not waiting three weeks to see a doctor, three months to see a doctor, six months to see a doctor. You're seeing the doctor the same day or the next day. And what a crazy idea. You get to talk to them about everything that's going on. Not, oh, well, you've missed the maximum of three things we can talk about today. Set another appointment for those other three issues that you got. We can talk about those in three months. Bureaucracy is really, when you talk about what has caused all this, well, it's bureaucracy. Healthcare has become truly a business. You know, especially on the pharmacy side. I mean, it's just God, oh, yeah. it's, it's awful. We haven't even talked about that. Not even scratch the surface. But we've got to bring back the light of care and have it be where the consumer can have some affordability in this. And that's what direct primary care does. And and I know that um, I'm a my doctor that I have is a direct primary care doctor, and I pay about eighty bucks a month, and I have immediate access to, you know, these clinics, these corporate clinics, they want those physicians, those primary care doctors to see on average around 3,000 patients a year and deliver good quality primary care to those patients. And that's almost impossible. So much so that it creates this thing that we're kind of making fun of in the primary care world, the 15 minute rule. Yeah. If you ever want to get into a really good conversation with a primary care doctor, bring up the 15-minute rule with them and ask them to describe to you what that is and how it has come yeah. about. It's ridiculous. They can only spend about 15 minutes per patient. And if they can't take care of you in 15 minutes and identify what's wrong with you and what that protocol needs to look like going forward with medications or whatever, they are encouraged to refer you to a specialist. Right. Let's face it, a specialist commands a much higher price point. And if you have insurance, well, they're referring you to a specialist within their own system. That's right. And they get incentivized, the primary care doctor does, by referring you to that specialist because they can get some referral fees off of that called RVUs. If you've ever done any research, you know about referral value units. They can make a lot of money off of referrals by referring you to a specialist. Now you're going to see a specialist. Maybe it's not necessary. In many cases, it's not. If that primary care doctor was able to spend more than 15 minutes with you, they could figure out what's going on, run the test, read the test, and take care of you at the primary care level, where it's a lot less costly than the specialty level. But you get into that specialist, now they've got you. They've got higher dollars, higher payouts, higher price points, and your insurance is what? Paying for all that. That's right. And it's going to come back to you in the form of higher premiums down the road. 
And and don't think that because you get, let's say you're in this traditional model, you've went to your primary care doctor, and now you're being sent to a specialist. Don't think that that specialist is necessarily going to take care of everything. I'm going to give you an example that happened to my wife, and that is the, the primary care doctor sent her over here to see this doctor. This doctor did all of her tests, and she came back and said, well, my numbers, her for her lane, my numbers look good. Well, I said, well, wait a second. But what about this right here? She goes, yeah, I, I see that. But my numbers look good. You need to go back and see your primary care doctor so they can refer you to someone that can help you with that. Wait a second. Seriously? Yeah. Uh, my, my wife said, well, I appreciate that, and you're fired. I, I, I mean, she literally said, well, I will not come back and see you. I mean, you cannot, You can see the problem right here. And don't tell me it's beyond your training, and you're, but you're not going to help me. I mean, come on. Well, and then we get But they are kind of regulated, right? They're, they are a little bit handcuffed. Well, uh, yeah. This is what you're told to do. I can't refer you because I'm not a primary care doctor. And I don't want to do this because I could get in trouble for doing this. So go back and see your primary care, but make sure you stay in the system. We want to make sure we stay in our silo right here. Come on. The perverse incentives that exist. The, The consumer needs to wise up. And I tell people all the time, and you've heard this before, healthcare is the only thing in life that we buy without knowing what the cost of it is until after we bought it. And that's the problem with healthcare. There's nothing else in life that we buy like that. Well, I'll take that back. There's one exception, and that's drinks at a bar. <laughs> well, I'll never forget being in Washington, D.C., and we had a good day on the hill. They came around to our table and said, what do y'all want to drink? And I'm like, you know, it was a good day. I think I'm going to have some, some, uh, some nice scotch. What do you got? And I went for that really, you know, the, the name brand stuff, um, um, Glenn Levitt. If any Scotch fans out there, you know, Glenn Levitt's good, good brand. They said, do you want the 15-year-old or the 20-year-old? I said, well, I'll take the 20-year-old. And so they brought me this little glass of Glenn Levitt 20-year-old Scotch. I enjoyed that. And then the bill comes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it was like 40 bucks. For one drink. And all my friends were making fun of me. I'm like, well, but here's the difference. I had the opportunity to ask what the price was first. And they they know what the price was and they could have told me. I just didn't do my job of asking. You can't do that in healthcare, really. It's hard to do that in healthcare. Doctor, how much is this visit going to cost me today? How much is it going to cost for you to do the surgical procedure on my knee? And, you know, we've talked a lot about ACA. The last 10 years has been really focused on ACA. But I believe now that we have some new laws and new rules in effect regarding healthcare pricing transparency. Right. I believe the next decade is going to be nothing about, well, everything about transparency. Allowing the consumer to have access to data the hospital is required to give to them. The health plan is required to give to them so that they know what these costs look like before they have the visit. That's what we need. And I'm so excited that we are we are, we are at the very beginning of this uh, adoption of looking at transparency being the key 
creating affordability. Because now the consumer can be a smart consumer of health care, whether they have insurance or not. If they have insurance, that's great. The price is already set. But if they don't have insurance, or if they have a plan that allows for the payments to be made in cash, like a self-insured plan, that's where we're going to be able to start managing those costs. Lowering claim costs will lower premiums. It's that simple. Yeah, and I think us continuing, the brokers and the and the other folks that are in this side have had to continue with the education because there, there really are ways out there right now because of the good faith estimate that they have to provide you and the fact that they make it sound like you have to, but you don't have to use your insurance. If you have insurance, you don't have to use it. You can actually ask, what is the cash price? Uh, There are many entities that don't want to give it to you. They don't, they they will tell you. I I just read one here recently where they told the lady, I'm required by law to take your insurance. If you've got it, you have to tell me. It's against the law for you not to tell me that you have insurance. So you've got to give it to me. Yeah, show me that. Blatant lie. That's a blatant lie. It is not required. You you have the right not to provide your insurance. You remember how not too long ago, if you went to the pharmacy and you didn't, if you had insurance, you told them you didn't want to use it, they didn't want to talk to you. They're like, no, you've got to use your insurance. I've got to charge you this much for it. Well, how much is it if I char- paid cash? $2. Well, how much is my copay? 50 I don't want to pay $50. I don't want to do my, I'm sorry, but we have it on record. You got to do it. Well, this same kind of thing is happening out there in facilities and they can't do that. They got it's to get like you the chance for it. Like we, we, we've been captured in the system and we as consumers have fallen in love with our captors. And it's like. Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> the, the jail door is, is wide open. It's not locked. We can walk out anytime. Right. The beatings will continue until we do. And now yeah. we have transparency. And now, now we're in a place we can walk through that door and we can have cash prices on the other side that are lower than these pre-negotiated insurance company prices. Right? I mean, who's who are these people, the insurance company that are negotiating these prices? Tell me, because they are horrible. If I'm ever taken hostage, please don't have them negotiate. Don't have hostage. them do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's amazing. Uh, I had seen uh, somebody had posted this morning a bill from you might have saw it also from uh, a Baptist neighborhood hospital. And on this bill was a CT scan for uh, over nineteen thousand dollars. Overnight for a CT scan. Needless to say, Kristen Dickerson over at Green Imaging was dissatisfied and very displeased and had a few choice words to say about this. (laughs) That's the the fleecing of the consumer. It's just horrible. We've got to point out who are these who are these medical practitioners that are doing this and call them out. Yeah. So I had a client last week. Here's Here was her experience. Now, this is a Medicare client uh, on a Cigna plan. I don't know particularly it was Cigna's fault in this case, but I'll be, I want to walk you through this very interesting situation. So this lady needed to have cataract surgery. Whenever we got her on her Cigna plan for this year, we made sure that her doctor, 
the one she wanted to see was accepted by Signet. Sure enough, it was. Uh, she's it's a it's a Cigna HMO. She's gone through the whole process. Her doctor does accept it. Everything was good to go. The morning of her surgery, the day before, by the way, she called or they called and said, be here at this time. Surgery center calls, be here at this time. Be ready to go. The morning of her surgery, her surgery center called and said, hey, we just wanted to let you know that it appears that the surgery center is not in your network. Your doctor is, but the surgery center is not in your network, nor is the anesthesiologist. We will accept a cash payment when you get here this morning of $1,400, but be prepared for the anesthesiologist bill to come in a few weeks. Where was all this information before the day of the surgery? And you tell me in any way that you believe this wasn't a setup because they expected this family to just go ahead and go with it because this is the way it was. If they knew that morning, I guarantee you they knew before that day. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, they did. Yeah, I don't know. You know, things are changing, right? I mean, they we, they really are. And I think they're changing for the better. You know, we talked about DPC a while ago. That's a change that's taken place in the last decade that's got so much traction and growth that uh, these doctors that are overworked in these corporate clinics are coming out of these clinics. Yes, they are. That, uh, you know, they're, they're reaching burnout and the, the direct primary care just lets them go back to doing what they love to do, and that's improve population health without having to deal with all the bureaucracy. It is the best form of care ever. We're seeing where the way healthcare is being delivered to us is differently. The healthcare financing side of the equation hasn't caught up with some of this stuff yet, unless you're in this large employer space where you can do a self-funded plan. And the thing is, when we talk about these self-funded plans, uh, Harlan, I mean, we all know agents out there that are doing self-funded plans all day long. But we're not talking about just any old self-funded plan. Right. There's a new generation of self-funded plans that's not using pre-negotiated prices, like what you just described with a Cigna or a Blue Cross or an Aetna or a United Healthcare. We've got to get away from these pre-negotiated prices that are in these health plans. And when you do that, the statistics are that there's about a 20% amount of dollars in these plans. It's just sloshing around. If you take a municipality that's paying $10 million a year for their all of the city or county employees to have a health plan, and you take what 20% represents, that's $2 million. Tell me what city in this state doesn't need an additional $2 million to help with their budgeting, roads, bridges, infrastructure. It's all about relocalizing and rehumanizing the healthcare experience for the consumer without adding on additional risk. And saving every municipality in this state, 20% of their spend, every large employer would be able to save 20% of that spend on healthcare is bigger than any stimulus package this country has ever seen. You know, Dave Chase, if you subscribe to some of Dave Chase's uh, programs, books, he talks about how healthcare and healthcare financing products are responsible for 20 years worth of wage stagnation in this country. And that's a shame. 
that we're living in communities that could be so much better off financially with higher wages than higher health care costs. Yeah, you really think about it. If you look at how much employers pay, how much more for their health care and health care access and health insurance plans, how much more could they pay their employees if they weren't using having all that waste? And you were not while direct primary care, of course, is a huge push of all this. And it's the basis of what we really want to do as far as the grassroots level. Let's not forget that we we have surgery centers that have jumped into this thing, too. I mean, you have Dr. Keith Smith's place up there in Oklahoma, the, the, uh, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. They don't accept insurance. They do only cash pay bundles. Uh, you have Texas Medical Management over there, Sean Kelly's outfit, that they have multiple surgery centers across Texas now working yep. with that same type situation where you have bundled prices. It has made it well worth the cost of some of that medical tourism uh, but it's medical tourism on a different level. You don't have to go to another country. You may just be able to go to another county or another city or, yeah, in some cases, another state. But it's becoming a bigger push across the United States. It, it Of all the strange places for this to begin, it started in Oklahoma, but it has worked out, uh, starting to work out further and further. And we're seeing more states embrace this. And, I, you know, we're very blessed, Kelly, to be in a state that has fully embraced DPC and a structure of cash pricing for surgical surgical procedures all over the state that you can get done. But there's more. There's always a need for more. And, and until we start getting much more on the west on the, the edges, on the yep. on the coast, we're not going to see the big impact we need all the way across this country because the embrace has to be made there. And it, there's a lot of pushback for direct primary care in particular, even on the edges of the country. And we've got to get that set up there and get people's mind changed to that before we start embracing it more on this country. That's my opinion. But usually until you start getting the edges of the country where the most people are, you're not going to have a big acceptance of something. And hey, if they don't, we can have those people come to our state and spend their dollars here on health care. You know, I don't mind that. Dr. Smith, it's funny you bring him up. He and I were having a conversation because I served on the hospital board here locally in my community for about six years. And it's funny, I'm, I'm on the finance committee as well, serving in that on that board. And the, the CEO and the CFO would always talk about how, oh man, we just, you know, it's hard for us to survive on Medicare uh, payments alone. It's just, they don't pay us enough, you know? And I brought that up to Keith Smith because a lot of the prices that he, that they charge there at the surgical center of Oklahoma City are lower than what they would get paid if they were being reimbursed by Medicare. For example, a gallbladder procedure at Oklahoma Surgical Center would be about $6,800. And I believe Medicare would reimburse about $7,400 for a gallbladder procedure. So I asked Dr. Smith, I'm like, so Dr. Smith, I don't get it. Why are these hospitals complaining that they can't operate on Medicare reimbursements alone? He goes, well, they can, but they are too administratively heavy. There we go. hospital are you driving by? Every hospital that I drive by has new construction going on somewhere. Everywhere. Everywhere. Millions and billions of dollars of construction happening at these systems, right? And he said, "Here, this, this is what resonated with me. Why is that inefficiency at the hospital the consumer's fault? It's not. 
And if Dr. Smith can run a financially uh, successful operation at the Surgical Center of Oklahoma City and make profits by charging people around that Medicare cost, why can't these big hospital systems do it? Well, you can pull up a 990 with any hospital system and look and see what their leadership gets paid. Yeah. And that's where you're losing. That's where they're bleeding out. That's where they're wasting a lot of money is on these huge CEO payouts, millions and millions of dollars for CEOs. It's ridiculous. They don't need that. No. And construction. No. And, and, and so let's talk about something else that's a little bit uh, – it's not. It's completely tied to that. And that is another part of these next-generation – Self-funded, level-funded. Guys, let, let, let me just get that out there in case you don't understand. Self-funded includes level-funded. It includes self-funded that is administrated uh, by a third party, whether that is a BUCA or whether that is an independent third-party administrator, or whether it is truly self-funded, where you've got those big companies like Kelly mentioned earlier, that they don't have work with anybody. They just completely fund everything themselves. All of those are considered self-funded plans. But where a big difference comes in whenever you start working with all of these different companies or whether when you start looking at, at self-funded is, as you mentioned earlier, some direct contracting. So you've got direct contracting. Uh, you get out of the business in many cases of working with some of these big hospitals. But the thing that is the very most important to understand that the cost when hospitalization surgeries are involved with employees, we're going to use employees this time because we're going to kind of talk towards employers right now, is whenever you're getting charged for those readmittances or those uh, the, all the things that happen when they got into the hospital. So they might be sicker when they get out than they went in. They've got uh, all kinds of things going on. Uh, whenever your employees are looking or shopping for health care, it's not just about the prices, in many cases, about the quality that they're looking at. Uh, recently, just last week, one of the big publications that does these stu studies every quarter, uh, the LeapFrog Group, released their latest rankings of over 3,000 hospitals, and there were 12 hospitals that got an F. Do you know which ones they were? Would you like to know which ones they were before you schedule your next surgery? Absolutely. Because some of them might surprise you. There was also five of them that are repeat Fs. They were F last quarter and they're F again this quarter. And they're all graded on things that were preventable. Mm -hmm. Preventable complications, preventable uh, infections, many things, preventable accidents. All of this was graded on there. But I can tell you that when I stood on stage last week at a group out of uh, Richmond, Texas, which is just to the west of Houston. And I told the folks I was talking to, one of the hospitals that got an F is less than 10 miles from where we're sitting right now. Would you like to know which one before you or a family member is admitted to that hospital? Well, I can tell you right now, Kelly, I wanted to know. If I was them, I would want to know. And I had a number of people walk up to me after because I didn't yell it out in the, in the I didn't yell it across the congregation, but I sure let them know who it was. Yeah, it's important for the consumers to be able to have access to these tools so that they can research. I mean, that's 
that's what's going to produce better results for the whole country. So, you know, you're right. The, uh, the transparency is a big deal. And the funny thing that you mentioned about quality, too, those low-grade hospital systems or providers probably are the most expensive as well. That's correct. It's funny how there's just an indirect correlation between quality and cost. Usually the lowest cost facility is going to have the highest grade. That's right. It really is because they actually run at a better, uh, their administration is typically not as high. They run at a better overall click. They're doing things much better and they don't have to charge higher prices to make up for all of their deficiencies. And that's what happens so many times in these facilities. But you mentioned something else. This just talked about the hospital. It really didn't even talk about the provider. Uh, a great you know, story that I um, heard back in February was a gentleman that, you know, this, this isn't a good part of it, but he has a neurological problem, had a brain tumor. Uh, he had been referred to this doctor. And the gentleman he was talking to said, you know, would you like me to find out what the grade of your physician is before you have this done? Because I can find that out for you. He's like, man, I'd love for you to find that out for me. Uh, he come back and said, you know, I got some good news and some bad news. Well, what, what's what's the bad news? He said, your, your guy rated 8.4. Well, I mean, that's bad, but that ain't too bad out of 100. What? what? Out of 100? 8.4 out of 100? So, yeah, his big problems were infection and yeah. mortality. That's where he had his worst problems. Well, what the heck could be the good news? Well, the good news is I found three doctors in your area that are over 90. You know, one of them is a 99, 99.7. He's like, I, I, I think I want that guy. Can you give me his name? <laughs> so whenever you're doing some of that work and you have access to those tools, right? Like I have access to those tools. I think that's what our job is morphing into. Yes. As brokers, we're not just selling insurance or developing high-performing health plans for employers. We're implementing processes to where we help the employees identify these providers and what their options are to help hold down the cost and get higher quality. I mean, right. that's how our job is changing as brokers. And, you know, for us to, to not be moving in that direction, if you're if you're the kind of broker that's not doing those things or that you're not willing to do those things, because you think it's going to take too much work on your end, well, you might want to go do something else or figure out how to get out of this business because that's where this industry is headed. No, I agree with you. It's interesting to talk to someone who does this all day. Uh, I was talking to Deb Alt, Nurse Deb, yeah. and over there at AIM, and she said, you know, here, here's the things that we've run into. You you decide that you're going to have a baby step for a company, and so they're going to continue to work with a network. I won't call out any networks here, but we're going to continue to work with a network. And they go through and they look at all the doctors in the network and they said, wow, we have some very low performing doctors in this network. So we're going to reach out to the insurance company and ask them, can we exclude? Can we get some of these doctors to not even show up? We want the bottom 25% of your doctors to not even show up in the doc search. And the insurance company comes back and says, we can't do that. Our contract with these physicians gives everyone the opportunity to be listed first. Everyone, no matter how poor their performance is, no matter what their outcomes are, gets to be listed first. That means that every time you do a doc search 
and you need whatever. I, I, I need a, an orthopedic surgeon. You're playing Russian roulette because you could get the top guy or you could get the bottom guy. It goes back to the doctor that passes boards with a 99 versus the doctor that passes boards on a with a score of 70. Right. They call doctor. Right. Doctor. That's exactly right. And I think that that is, you know, over the years, we've seen a little bit since COVID, we've seen a little bit of questioning of doctors a little bit more than I think we saw previously. But typically, if the doctor said, "I need you need to have this surgery, and I'm going to send you here to do it, okay, doc. I mean, that was our answer, okay, doc, right? I mean, and remember, it wasn't too long ago. This is another interesting thing, too, that's happened in this whole dynamic, Kelly. It wasn't too long ago that all of these big insurance companies required a second opinion if you're going to have any major surgery. Now, zero do. Not a single insurance company requires you to have a second opinion, and that it's been proven that about 88% of diagnoses are not 100% correct. Because so the insurance company has already vetted them. Right. right. Yeah. You know, it's funny, um, when we talk about cost and quality, we use a, an analogy with some of our employer when we go out to do employee meetings, the employer allows us to. We we I went down to 7-Eleven, the convenience store, and I bought a can of green beans from 7-Eleven. Del Monte, green beans, you know, three dollars and fifty cents. Then you go here to your regular hometown grocery store, you know, HEB, Kroger, whatever. I don't know what you guys have there in San Antonio. We have United's up here in Wichita Falls, but you can buy that same can of green beans. Doesn't have all the dust on it that the one from 7-Eleven has. The same can of Del Monte green beans for like $1.20. So I get these receipts and put them side by side. What's the difference between these two cans of green beans, other than one of them is kind of dusty, the other one's not. It's the same company, same Del Monte. Or I can go over here to the produce section and get some fresh green beans for about 25 cents a pound. <laughs> much better quality, much lower cost. And we use that analogy with some of our employees that we're trying to educate on, we got to stop buying our health care at 7-Eleven. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. We may have to go to Walmart. We may have to go to Aldi's. If you have an Aldi's, you know what an Aldi's is. I do, yeah. Aldi's got some good stuff, man. I'm telling you, it's good quality, good low price. Or maybe we need to go to Costco or Sam's to purchase some of this stuff at a lower cost and high quality. But we've got to get into this mentality We've got to be better consumers of the health care. And if we do, we're going to solve a lot of problems instead of just thinking that somebody else is going to do this work for us or that it's been done. And we've got to just trust that entity that tells us where we need to go and who we need to go see. Things are changing. They are. And once again, that an educated consumer, this is across everything, right? Let, let's let's think about the education of the consumer across all the different things over time that there has been, an educated consumer changes the market. Yep. And that has been, in you, you fill in the blank of whatever it is out there over the history of our capitalist society here, an educated consumer changes an industry. And just like we've had disruption in a number of other industries, 
you're going to see it in the healthcare industry. It's coming. And when it comes, I really think it's going to be just like that too. Kelly, I really think it's going to be turn on the dime. All of a sudden, the 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 light bulb is going to go off over across multiple different places across this country whenever all of a sudden enough people say, oh, my gosh, what have we been doing? And when it does, we're going to be in such a better place. But that collective is the only thing that's going to change the way business is done because the insurance companies have done it a certain way for 100 plus years. And in the health side, over the last 40 years, we've been going towards we're going right now. Now, let's talk about the one thing that is going to happen if we don't have that light bulb go off soon enough, and that is socialized medicine. And we are on the collision course with it right now. That is exactly where the government wants us to go. And that's where we're headed if we don't make some some inroads. If we, that's us. That's on us, Kelly. That's us getting the word right. out in education. You're right. You know, healthcare is is very complicated. And that transaction, the more complicated that it is, and the solutions that aren't transparent, puts a, a, that consumer in a place that says, ah, you know, just I'm so sick and tired of, of all this mess. Let's just do the single payer system. Let the government be the the you know the single payer government ran health care like they do in other countries so well. Right. <laughs> well, uh, no, you're right. That's going to be the downfall because then we're going to have even a bigger issue with access, a bigger issue with transparency. Um, because when the government's the payer. There's a lot of things. Well, whoever the payer is will tell you where to go and how much is going to get paid. And so now you've got a whole sector of the medical provider community that now will turn into a government employee where a lot of bad actors come out. Right. I mean, look at just do any sort of Google search for uh, Medicare penalties in the physician world where they tried to do fraud on Medicare. It happens in every market across the nation. A lot of it takes place here in Texas, in San Antonio, in Houston, where providers or doctors are bilking out Medicare because the policing mechanism is not there to catch the fraud like it should be. So we're victims of all that. That adds to the cost of health care. But you're right. I think there, there's an element the enemy, whoever you want to identify as the enemy in this equation, wants the healthcare consumer to be so confused and it be so uh, confusing that they just go, all right, you guys do it and I'll, I'll be in that system. We don't want to go there. No, we don't. Bad. But they it, keep pushing that. I mean, that was part of the American Rescue Plan Act. As you, the, the increase of the subsidies, once again, gets you more on depending on the government, right? Uh, the in Inflation Reduction Act. Once again, let's 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 extend it and make it even more. Uh, now, of course, the family glitch. Let's fix that. Let's yeah. fix the family glitch so we can get more people off of group insurance and onto the ACA. All of these things are, once again, to keep pushing you onto the marketplace. There's not a surprise. It's not a surprise that there's more people on it now than ever before. Almost twice as many. In about a four-year period of time, it's almost doubled in the amount of people on it. That's uh, that's just getting folks 
once again, on government-subsidized plans. Medicaid, what do they say? Oh, we expanded Medicaid. Now we're going to take it away. But don't worry about it because most of you will go to the marketplace, exactly what they had in, in mind to begin with. It's funny, you know, we we live in the South, right, where we, not everyone, but we, we typically are more conservative-minded. And I've sat across the desk from some folks that are like, this isn't Obamacare, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, it is. You know, like, well, I don't want to do Obamacare. But you know what they do? By the time the conversation's over with, not that I talked them into it. Right. But they end up taking the subsidy to help them lower the cost of their health insurance. And um, and they become a benefit of the taxpayer. Right. I'd be different if they were at home, you know, playing video games and, you know, getting their 40 ounces and smoking a blunt, <laughs> not being a productive member of society. That's right. These are hardworking people. And I think they justify it a little bit by going, you know, I have paid into the tax system all these years. And now I'm going to be able to get some of these dollars back dedicated to help reducing the cost of my health care. Yep. But that's the way the system was built. And we're all going to be using that tax dollar. And but something's got to change on that, Harlan, because it just can't continue to. Agreed. to be what it is without turning into a single payer government ran healthcare system. Cause you're right. We've got two roads here, two paths to take. And we've got to figure out which one is going to be the healthiest for this country, healthiest for the consumer. And I believe that transparency and improving the healthcare quality for the consumer is the path that we want to take. This other yeah. path is laziness and it takes us down a path of very high cost less access, less quality, and uh, and just a disaster overall. Yeah, I mean, you you look traditionally at a free market. You know, we were just at the Free Market Medical Association. All the Free Market Medical Association is promoting is transparency and the opportunity. The opportunity mm -hmm. to shop like you would for anything else. And whenever you do that, may the best price, the best quality, uh, and best outcomes win. Right. That's that's what it's all about is getting the markets work. But if we don't have that, if we do have socialized medicine and what you're. OK, understand, folks out there, that you're still going to have the other side of that. You're still going to have a free market. You're still going to have people out there that are willing to pay the price to get the better care. But the majority of us will not be able to. The majority of us will be stuck in the government system, but the elite will never, ever use that system a single day. It's exactly what happens in the other countries that say it's so great. If it was such a perfect system, then the surgery center, uh, Oklahoma surgery center wouldn't exist. Free, uh, the Texas medical uh, medical management wouldn't exist because all, all these surgery centers existed their first years and made it because of uh, tourism, medical tourism from countries that had single-payer systems. Those people said, I don't want to wait 18, 24 months for a hip replacement surgery. I can't get around. I don't want to wait this long. I might be dead because I'm waiting this long for this type of surgery. I'm flying to Austin. I'm flying to Oklahoma City. I'm going to go and have this taken care of, and I know what it's going to cost me before I ever go. What a novel concept. Nobody's flying to Europe for surgical procedures. Nobody's flying to Canada 
They have surgical nope. procedures. It's not happening. No, they'll fly there for their medications, though, Kelly. They'll fly over there. And that's, that's a whole different problem, Harlan. That's, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> they'll fly over there and get, get their medication for a year for $6,000 instead of $60,000 a month. <laughs> yep. But you're right. all, all, got, all other can of worms, brother. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do, man. We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do, but I'll tell you what. I know there's a core group of a few hundred of us out there that are more than willing to take on this challenge and are passionate about what we do and helping people and helping employers take care of their employees in the very best way and changing the way that folks are able to access and consume health care in an affordable way. And we're not talking about, you know, crappy stuff. Uh, no, go down the back alley and here's the secret knock. No, this is going to quality facilities, uh, the right care at the right place, at the right time, at the right price, uh, all of it being you know free market type uh, situation to where you get what you pay for, but it's good quality. Because right now people are paying way too much for terrible care. Uh, like you mentioned, you're paying for administration is what you're doing. You're paying for the mistakes of others. We we've got to cover our uh, malpractice because we got another increase on our malpractice. Right. <laughs> but, but I just I'll hope that you know, <laughs> twenty years from now, thirty years from now, when future leaders in this industry look back on these times, that that I'll be one of these people, and you too, that we will be one of these people that they will allow us to wear the T-shirt that says "I help fix healthcare," that they will recognize us as being those pioneers that cut a new trail and show people how to do it differently, better, and more affordably. That's what it's all about. I can't say it any better than that, brother. Hey, I sure appreciate you joining with me. And uh, yeah, hey, we'll have a, a blast. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll have a, a backup. We'll have a round like two. Joe Rogan. Yeah. Like that, you know, Joe Rogan podcast. I'm, I'm podcast famous now. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you, brother, man. We'll catch up another time. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. All right.